Hello, Bob. Hello, Carl. We have a special treat right now for listeners. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. Fire. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize you could sing so well. <laughs> it's a hidden talent, Carl. <laughs> we decided we would start this with the Doors because you've written a book about them. And um, Jim Morrison and the death days of the 60s. Before we get to all that, um, and although you've been on the podcast before, so some listeners will be familiar with you and your work, maybe you should... You should um, review it for us and and uh, what brought you to this particular book sure thing carl thanks uh and so so super psyched to be back on the show as a longtime listener you and i have traded many notes on the show and I, it's value that i think you bring to biography worldwide um my story is uh as a historian interested in biography which the downside not very um, respected as a field amongst hardcore historians, but I just couldn't shake it. I've been a lifelong biography fan. And throughout many twists and turns in my career, I started writing first scholarly books, then quasi-scholarly books. And then in 2017, I turned to trade books uh, pretty much exclusively with my biography of Stan Lee, which was arguably the first or at least one of the first couple full-scale biographies of Stan Lee. And since then, um, the career has gone well, won some awards, got some re good reviews, um, had some, some lists or some readers <laughs> and, you know, pretty much everything that you want as a, as a trade book author how I got to the doors, almost the same way as how I got to Stan Lee. I had been a lifelong Stan Lee fan. I taught myself to read when I was four years old so that I could read Spider-Man comic books. And in high school, um, it was very strange in my high school. You, you had to choose sides. And so it was on one hand, you had to choose between the Beatles or the Rolling Stones and between Led Zeppelin and The Doors. Hmm. And I chose The Rolling Stones and The Doors. And there were actually fistfights about this, if you can believe <laughs> that. Um, so a, a lifelong fan of The Doors. And so when I hooked up with this great, what, what are arguably I think is the best boutique trade publisher in the world, Hamilcar Publications, run by Kyle Serafine, we were looking for another big topic. And so between the two of us, we decided what better than, you know, uh, 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 up and coming Gen X historian who has written a lot about culture to take on classic rock. So this Doors book is the first in a trilogy of books about 
kind of gen the Gen X take on classic rock. What you say about the fist fights interests me uh, because I think partly what you're suggesting in the book is that music mattered in a certain way um, that's very different now culturally that we're at a very different point now than when the doors emerged. Maybe you could say more about that. Obviously, that, that deals with the 60s. I think you say at some point in the book, too, that when we talk about the 60s, we're really talking about 65, 66, um, which, which is what happened to me where I was living. I, I was an undergraduate at Michigan State University in 1965, might as well have been 1955. Yep. But the very next year, everything exploded yeah it's one of the reasons that i wrote the book is that i'm always flummoxed and i think you share this same idea with me that people have forgotten history <laughs> yeah they, they and so on one hand so you take a, a topic like stan lee there are people who are obsessive about stan lee to the point like they know more probably than I do about the minutia of Stan Lee, but the, the broader reader, the broader person in society, though they may know the name, they recognize the cameos in the movies. They know absolutely nothing about the person or their story. And the, and the story is often the story of con the contemporary world. And so with the doors, there's been, what I would call, you know, so much mythology about Jim Morrison and the Doors movie by Oliver Stone, which came out in 91, kind of pushed that even more. So what I found when people found out that I was writing about the Doors, they would, they would just, their heads would explode. They were so excited. But when they actually started talking to me about what they knew about Jim Morrison or the Doors, they only knew the cartoon character that was portrayed in the Doors movie. They didn't know anything about Morrison or the, the, the importance of this band or what this band meant culturally at that time. Um, and I would say that, you know, I got my master's degree at Kent State and uh, I went there to study under one of the preeminent diplomatic historians of his era, uh, 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 my mentor, Lawrence Kaplan. But you can't go to Kent State without really fully imbibing the, the May 4th uh, tragedy there. And so that may have been the actual launch of, of wanting to write a book. There's very much a transition from the 60s that you're talking about and the, that I talk about in the book, the summer of love to the early 70s. It was a dangerous time that people don't realize today how really America was at its frayed ends. And I wanted to capture that in a book. Well, uh, I think you do. Uh, and you provide, uh, you know, significant cultural context. Uh, after reading your book, I started thinking about my, my own experiences during the 60s and listening to music and remembering one of my favorite albums, which is a Rolling Stones album, Let It Bleed. Mm -hmm. And then it suddenly occurred to me, you know, that was a very popular album. Um, but the title, who would title an album before the Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed? 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is just, when you think about it, it's shocking. You know, when, when, when you use phrases like a pop group. So a, a pop group comes out with an album called Let It Bleed. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, the and, and so that's the kind of thing that I think is dying in our culture, like that we don't understand contextually our past in a way to understand how it can help guide the future and, and at least make us more thoughtful, contributive members of society. <laughs> and um, I've listened to Let It Bleed, Carl, probably... 10 times in the last week. So I love the fact that you, that you yeah. shared that. That's, um, I that, mentioned that, that album's amazing. Yeah. I, I mentioned that too, by the way, in, in my review of your book, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks in the New York sun, it just, it just suddenly dawned on me what Morrison was doing and the, the, the culture he was in, what he was trying to make people confront, even his own audiences when he turned antagonistic toward them sometimes, uh, I think he was responding to, on the one hand, the adulation, and the other hand, why am I getting this adulation? Yeah, and one of the things I didn't even really bring out in the book, you know, because you know and I know, like there are certain things when you write a book, you first of all, the 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 biggest misconception about writing books is that readers think you can just write whatever you want, and that's not the case because. In, unless you're super famous, you have a word count, you know, and, and That's I, right. I had a very strict word count in this book um, because I don't want to write 600 page books anymore. And in fact, I would rather write a book that somebody could read on a, on a flight from, from Chicago to Los Angeles than write something long. Yeah, That's just a, where, where I'm at in my career. Yeah. The word count matters. Yeah, and it, so, it de depends, you know, it determines what kind of book you're going to write. Or in my case, I have 700 words in the New York Sun. And yeah. that determines a lot of what I say in a particular review. And someone who reads a review will say, well, that's what he thought of the book. Well, yes and no. <laughs> if I had 1,400 words or 2,400 words, uh, there would be some differences, certainly yeah. nuances that I can't, I can't work into those 700 words. Yeah. And one of the paths that I didn't go down was, I don't know if Morrison was reading McLuhan or if he was just picking up the same vibes in the air. Yeah. Like when you, when you read some of the things that Jim Morrison was saying, it's very, very smart. I mean, it, it, he has captured the zeitgeist and then he's, as you say, like he's drawing that energy in from the, the audiences. And what he's trying to say to them is you're addicted to television. Wake up. Which, as you know, was the same thing Norman Mailer was saying at the exact same time. Yes. And so you say this pop singer, which, you know, a lot of people don't even realize Morrison was a college graduate, which set, sets him apart from most rock and roll singers and, and performers right there. But the guy was smart. <laughs> it's, it, and so I wanted to bring that out, but I didn't get into the minutia of McLuhan and McLuhan's thinking because that could be a thousand or fifteen hundred word deviation from the text that then I'm going to have to make a very serious decision about cutting something else out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Morrison um, was well read. Uh, one of the things. Uh, 
you indicate is he, he really was a poet. Uh, and the music came in a sense afterwards. He was writing poetry. He was very much influenced by people like Arthur Rambeau. Yes. And, and, and you need to know that in a sense to understand both the trajectory of his of Morrison's work and Morrison's life. Um, that he's coming from a tradition which is not usually associated with rock or jazz or rhythm and blues for, for that matter. Yeah, rock and roll is so so relatively young at this time. Some of the things the Doors are doing, they're inventing these things. And of course, the Beatles and the Stones and a couple other bands are in that mix doing the same thing at the same time, more or less. Um, but the, the Doors are really, they're pioneers. And that's why we made a very deliberate decision to start the book with a almost like a, a mugshot of each member of the band and then talking about their influences and their, um, you know, their backgrounds, because I didn't want to assume, and I, and I should never assume that anybody knows anything about this topic, except they've heard the songs and know the name. And right. so I, I wanted almost like a film, you know, and when I write books, I'm thinking of this book as a lo very long screenplay so that a producer could take this book and turn it into a movie pretty simply. And I hope so, some producers are listening. <laughs> so do I. My, my, and I think you, you and I share this as well, Carl, my, my experiences with producers have been, let's just say unsatisfying. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I think there's real value there for the readers and that's what they tell me. I mean, they, I think one of the reasons I've been able to do what I've been able to do away from the big five publishers is that I've cultivated an audience of people who enjoy reading a Bob Batchelor book. And so if you read a Bob Batchelor book, you're going to get a full sense of the culture of the thing. You're going to get the history but you're also then going to also get a projection into why this should matter to you today. And that's important to me. I think you just said something really significant for anyone listening and writing a book uh, that's not going to be a trade book pub publication, or they may be trying trade book publishers, and the, the publisher claims not to figure out how to sell this to a broader general audience. There is such a thing as cultivating an audience I discovered this in a way quite by accident. I, ju I just write biographies of people who um, touch some kind of nerve in me. You know, I have some kind of connection, contact with them. And in some cases, certainly like Marilyn Monroe, obviously a publishers, uh, publishers are going to be interested. Um, but with other subjects, uh, like my biography of Dana Andrews, he was a big movie star in the 1940s. But most people probably don't even know who he is now uh, or would have only only the vaguest sense of maybe if they've seen a movie on uh, Turner Classic Movies or something like that. And yet he has a devoted following. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, the, my book sold not because of any reviews uh, or particularly promotion, uh, except through social media where there's a Dane Andrews group. And the, the word sells through word of mouth to such an extent that, uh, and I said this before on the podcast, 
Uh, I sold as many copies of my Dana Andrus biography, which is published by University Press in Mississippi, as I sold of, of my first Sylvia Plath biography, which, you know, still astounds me. But it's because, uh, as you say, you have an audience. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's rough going, as you know. I mean, when you don't have big marketing push behind you or really <laughs> in some cases any marketing push right yeah. you, it, I, I i i you know i i'm at heart a country boy from western pa so i grew up making a lot of fires either you know <laughs> outdoor fires fires in fireplaces i'm pretty skilled at that whole process and you have to get that first spark and you have to add the kindling to hope that a bigger fire. So I see all this stuff that we do on social media and pushing out to groups. I did the same thing. I pushed, I pushed the book out to Facebook groups who are devoted to the doors. Yeah. And those number, those people number nearly a million people yeah. who have voluntarily joined uh, Facebook groups. And so what I'm hoping the same way that I hope with all my other books is that that spark leads to some burst of flame that then gets the book and the topic, the recognition, the widespread readership. I mean, that's, that's just kind of what I'm, what I'm hoping for. You know, I'm never going to have the money to, to buy ads, you know, and mass. I'm never going to, you know, it's, it's not big five. I'm probably never going to publish a book with a big five publisher um, but I can have a successful career if I continue to cultivate readers and do, do interesting work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's the way to go. It's one reason why I decided to do a biography of Ronald Coleman. Again, a lot of people won't even know who that is, but I have an audience who knows who Ronald Coleman is yeah. and will be prepared to, to read about him for, for precisely that reason. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, um, look at a couple of things that you do as a biographer that, that interested me, fascinated me. And one is the way you handle uh, what you call the origin story hmm. and how that story is told in different ways. Maybe you could say something about that. Sure. Um, with a book, when you have a pretty tight, both deadline for completing and tight word count, I, I had to make really fast, not fast decisions, but I had to make smart decisions about what to cover. And so for me, every, you know, there's always an origin story. There's something that happens. And I, then I like to probe around the edges of that. And part of it is just my training as a professional historian. I like counterfactual history and what that can bring out from uh, an examination of something. So, you know, what if the South would have won the Civil War? That's a typical counterfactual history kind of question. So we take this origin story that's pretty well known about Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek bumping into each other on the beach in Santa Monica and that launching this, you know, significant band that, that goes on to have this larger than life influence on their era. And so I try to, to flip it around. So, so, what if Morrison were more calculated in that meeting than he led on? What does it say about the origin of the band? Because one of the interesting things about The Doors is after Morrison dies, 
the other three guys in the band spend the rest of their lives talking about almost nothing but Jim Morrison. And I, I try to think about that as I'm writing the book. What kind of pressure is that? I mean, of course, there's financial reward for the fact that The Doors remain such a popular band when so many other 60s bands are barely known. But these, these, these men had to spend, I mean, they're, they're all older men now, and they, uh, you know, the two of the three of them, they're still alive. But Ray Manzarek spent the rest of his life talking about Jim Morrison. And so it, the origin story to me is something that you can always probe around. And, I, and then I like to add in, you know, what, what were they listening to? What were they potentially reading? And, in, you know, in fact, the Beatles, like a Rolling Stone from Bob Dylan, was out and being played on the radio when the doors were forming. And to, so to me, if I'm Ray Manzarek and I've been in some semi-successful regional bands and I hear like a Rolling Stone, I immediately know that I have to find a lyricist. Because if I'm perceptive, I'm going to understand that this is the future of music. And so what does he do? He goes out and finds his friend on the beach and, and they, they create a band. Yeah. One of the great things about the origin story, I think, is that um, what, what they have in common, that no matter who, who the figure is, if there is sort of a prominent origin story, it's almost like a fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, you and you want to probe around with that and see. Yeah, if you're see a biographer or a historian, you want to you want to say, was it really like that? <clears throat> I had a good lesson in this with Susan Sontag. She loved to tell the story about being a young writer in New York and um, not knowing anything or anybody, uh, and walking into Fair Strauss and Giroux and plopping down the manuscript of her first novel, which is picked up. Uh, by um, Bob Giroux, famous editor, who publishes her first novel. She told this story <clears throat> at a pen meeting, writer's group, um, American Pen Center, uh, and she told this story about, you know, what a wonderful, like a fantasy come true. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, the, in the archive at the New York Public Library, there's a letter from Bob Giroux to her in which he says, Dear Susan, I was fascinated with the story you told the other night at Penn. It's not quite what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on to say, Don't you remember that you mentioned Jason Epstein, you know, in this party you had been to, and you dropped his name and said, you know, he, that Jason says this is a book that I should publish. <laughs> Somehow Sontag left all that out of her origin story. Yeah, I love that. And and I and I think that's one of the things that I've learned from reading your work, Carl, and, and reading your your work about the theory of biography. It's that you can you can poke around at mythology and folklore and and try to come to some smart conclusion based on talking to people, based on what you find in a paper trail. So it's you know, it, it's been very helpful to me to have role models who are who are doing the kind of thing that I hope to do with whatever topic that I'm covering. Well, thank you. That's 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 very nice to hear. Um, one of the other things I like uh, about your book, maybe it's because it's the kind of thing I do, uh, 
is your last chapter, uh, which serves a couple of functions. Uh, I say this in my, my review too. On the one hand, you're providing a kind of primer for people who uh, don't know the doors at all or, or know them sort of casually. You know, you talk about the various memoirs and books that have been written and what their sort of their value is. Uh, and that's a service in itself. And it helps the reader understand how you came to your understanding of the doors as you evaluate these works. And you do it in an essay. Um, at the same time, what strikes me about what you're doing at the end of the book is you're saying to the readers, this is how this book emerged, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Lots of biographers have source notes. Uh, they might complement this or that writer or former biographer, but mainly what they do is tout their primary sources. Nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that because they're trying to say, look, what I've got is fresh. That's what publishers want too, and what readers want to know. What's new? What's new in the book? Uh, but they rarely spend very much time, unless it's a book about like the Brontes, you know, uh, the whole Bronte myth, uh, unless it's a book like that. A biographer is not, most biographers are not, they're not prone to doing that, uh, almost as if their work will shine less brightly if they spend too much time dealing with anyone else's work. Yeah, I appreciate that, Carl. I appreciate it quite a bit because there are always certain things about books that you put in that you think, well, everybody's going to react to this. And then I find that it's, it's never the case. Yes. <laughs> it's never the case. Like in The Bourbon King, my, my story of George Remus, I wrote an entire chapter from the perspective of his wife in like her shining moment. And I essentially, it was more creative nonfiction than, than, than just straight up nonfiction. And nobody, not a single reviewer ever commented on it. And yeah. I'm like, it's the most interesting chapter in the entire book. And nobody said a word. It's a good, good lesson for listeners and readers uh, to judge a book by its reviews. You'll certainly learn something about a book from its reviews. But it's such a truncated sense especially a biography as a form. That's one of my hobby horses, of course, is that almost very few reviewers deal with biography as a form about the way the story is told and shaped and structured and so on. They treat biography as, as primarily uh, content. What you're saying about, you know, the thing that you hope reviewers would, would notice and they never do reminds me of Joseph Ellis. I saw him once on a panel and he was talking about his biography of Thomas Jefferson and uh, Ellis is a historian, but he also thinks of himself simply as a writer, you know, mm -hmm. and an accomplished writer uh, and a someone concerned with form. Uh, and one of the <laughs> expressed one of his disappointments was he said, no reviewer noticed that at the beginning of every chapter, I have Jefferson coming in riding on a horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so w one of the things I think you mentioned form and the form of the biography. And it may, maybe it's my scholarly training as a historian and a literary person, um, you know, because I have a master's degree in history and I have a PhD in English literature. And, and I don't know if I'm one of five people in the world that have that, but I am one of very few. And it's influenced the way that I see things. And I don't like stuffy writers, stuffy biography. I don't like snootiness. <laughs> It's, I'm trying to accomplish something, but I do care about form. And so 
in this Roadhouse Blues book, what what my publisher, Kyle uh, Serafine at Hamilcar, allowed me to do because he wanted me to explore form is the next to last chapter is a mini memoir of how I came to love the doors. That's right. Yeah, that's good, too, because you get some fresh perspective. Yeah. And then I kind of now we we put the acknowledgments between those two pieces, but they're really one long essay. And we could have presented it like that. And and I thought on something so uh, historically covered as the 60s, as rock history, things like that, it would be much smarter to just walk the through the, the reader through. Like, if you've enjoyed this book, here are some other things you can do to dig in deeper if you choose. And I make the assumption that I don't, I think author, you know, the, the autoethnography, and this is my geeky scholarly side coming out, but autoethnography to me is important. It's, you know, and especially for writers, because, you know, I dedicated this book to Jerome Charon, our, you know, our mutual friend and his writing, both nonfiction and his fiction and his thinking has such, I mean, his fingerprints are all over this book. And he once said to me, and he said publicly he said, he looked at me one day and he said, Bob, at heart, all my books are about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. you share that. I think yes. it's, it's a connection that you, Jerome Charon, and I share. And I believe that. And so for the first time, I found a publisher who would let me explore that. Now, we did it in probably less than 5,000 words. But to me, it's maybe the happiest parts of the book when I think about it right now, because you, you can't, I don't think you can disconnect because if you talk to a writer, as you, you and I both know, we surrounded by writers our whole lives. When you talk about with them on a one-on-one basis, the first thing they want to tell you is all the stuff that I included in this doors memoir and, and the sources. So why not just give that to the reader? If they choose to stop reading, if they choose to throw the book across the room, I don't, you know, that's their, that's their decision. Yeah. But I, I felt it was important to include those, those pieces. And I think it made it a stronger book. Uh, you, you've mentioned your publisher several times, but let's talk a little bit about Hamilcar. How, how did you get to them? And why did they, in your view, uh, you said a little bit about this, but say a little bit more about why you, you thought they were the ones to do the book. Well, in a world in which marketing budgets are shrinking and the options for publishing are some way expanding, but also in some way shrinking, I think what I wanted is to find a publisher who saw the relationship as a partnership, not just a transaction. Because in the past, my, my, my engagement with the publishing industry, like when I've spoken to agents, I'll tell them 10 ideas and they're like, I could sell every one of these ideas, but not for six figure advance that I need to run my business. Yeah. And so that doesn't interest me, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I'd rather, so let's find somebody who will go out on that limb and wants to be a partner in the relationship. And so I met Kyle Serafine, who's the publisher at Hamilcar, through a mutual friend. 
probably six months to a year before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, he and I just started emailing and chatting on the phone. Occasionally we have some similar interests. He's a he's about, you know, he and I are around the same age. We like some of the same things. And he founded Hamilcar to do boxing books. And it, it's, it's a, really an interesting niche because there are some obsessive boxing fans around the world. I mean, they're fanatical about the history of the sport. And, and I'm not fanatical about boxing, but I read many of Hamilcar's books. And what jumps out at you is they create beautiful books and mm. they take chances that other people won't like I think in some instances, Roadhouse Blues is almost like an art book in, in the way that we used imagery that helps tell the story. And so as Kyle and I were talking, you know, the Bourbon King had come out. It had done pretty well, got a lot of notoriety, um, you know, kind of spread my platform. Kyle and I just kind of knew we were going to work together. And we kind of uncovered that we both had this intense love for classic rock. He, he and I are both big jazz fans and we were going to launch with a book on the Rolling Stones. But one day I was listening to some classic rock playlist on Spotify and a door song came on and I just got goosebumps. So I immediately went to the computer, emailed Kyle and said, Hey, I know we were going to lead with this Rolling Stones book. But I think there's a bigger book here potentially, or as, as interesting a first book. And that's how the trilogy idea started. Oh. And it was that easy. And so as a writer, he respects me. I respect him. I love what he does. He loves m my books. <laughs> you know, he enjoys reading books by Bob Batchelor. Yeah. And so we know that if the two of us like something and find it interesting, there's got to be 10,000 other people out there in a, in a, in the world that are going to agree with us. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference between that kind of publishing and trade house publishing. You might find an editor. I've certainly found some editors who have a real rapport who understand what I'm trying to do. And then that editor gets fired. Mm -hmm. And it's happened to me many times with trade books. Uh, and, uh, some cases another editor does the best that he or she can but that original fire uh, is almost never there uh, and i think there are some publishers like hamilcar i had another guest on this podcast jared stearns who's doing a biography of marilyn chambers and in fact that's one of my most popular podcasts uh, and he tried many many different publishers before finding uh, a, a small publisher called Headbooks. And one of the first things he said to me was, they're going to work with me on this book, just as you in this podcast talk about we. Uh, they're fully invested in this book. Uh, it's something they're going to spend a lot of time on. Uh, and um, for an author to find a publisher with that level of commitment is difficult. And I would say virtually impossible in trade book publishing these days. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate, fortunate that, that Kyle and I, I mean, he's become a very good friend. I mean, we, we are truly partners. We have other book ideas that um, we're going to, I think we're going to end up doing some book series together because I have quite a bit of, um, 
I think what, you know, what listeners wouldn't, wouldn't know about me if, if they just met me or just looked at my stuff online is that I'm like fully ensconced publishing nerd. Like (laughs) I have, I've worked in every facet of the publishing business. You know, for, for five years, I was a book series editor for Roman and Littlefield. I ran five book series Mm. and I've, I birthed in those five book series, I think 35, there are still books coming out in those book series. I think Mm -hmm. it's 35 plus books where I was essentially, I came up with the idea, came up with the table of contents, found somebody to write the book, gave them the leeway to change it as they needed, as the research unfolded, you know, as you've done with your, your, um, your book series, you know, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I don't think most people would know I mean, I've worked in book marketing. I've worked in line editing, development editing. I've, I've helped probably three or four dozen people learn how to write their first book. And many of them were academics who are trying to transition into trade book publishing or general books. So um, in, in fact, I've been thinking about doing some book coaching more seriously, like actually taking on some clients because when people talk to me about how do you, how do you write a book? Yeah. I can, I can tell them <clears throat> in 10 minutes, but then people need coaching to put that practice into, into formation. And I think that's not. true. Yeah. My first biography, I had uh, been used to writing scholarly articles and the first biography was in Marilyn Monroe and I wanted it to be a serious book, but I approached it all the wrong way. And it took me six years to figure out the right way to do it. And partly it was because of the people I interviewed, like um, the actress Susan Strasberg, who said, you know, the part that's really good is the part about acting and her life in relation to that acting. She said, and then there's all this other stuff which you seem to have written to impress your colleagues. <laughs> such a, that's such an academic perspective. And, and I, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I, you know, I have a very tortured past with academe so that but that's not for today uh to talk yeah but yeah um but i definitely i I get what you're saying and and um so yeah i was just very lucky to find hamilcar kyle wanted to expand into music he's expanding into true crime which has become like the historical true crime has become another strength of mine based on the bourbon king so i think that there's just a lot of Luckily yeah. for me, strains that and overlaps in what he wants to do and how I can help build his his publishing company. Um, so is it, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, it's you don't want to toot your own horn. But like, as I said, I've cultivated an audience. So, yes, Kanoff is not going to look at me and say, oh, we need this guy writing books for us. But in a, in a different situation, you have publishers like I get contacted by university presses who want to do trade books all the time. And, uh, you know, but but I'm I'd rather throw my hat in with Kyle because I benefit more from the partnership. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there something else I should have asked you or that you wanted to say or do you want to at this point just break into song? <laughs> I wish I could actually sing, Carl. Um, <laughs> the the thing that I think uh, listeners would enjoy knowing 
is that as I've been talking with people about the books and with readers and things like that, probably, you know, what I'm trying to do is show Jim Morrison from a 21st century perspective. You know, how would we assess him? Like, how do we look back on him taking away the cartoon character perspective? And then the secondary kind of idea is that I, did, I accuse, <laughs> I point fingers <laughs> at the state of Florida and the federal government. And I say it quite, quite frankly, that the, the state of Florida and the federal government killed Jim Morrison. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the book that I didn't get to and that there's, there wasn't space for me to do in the review. I'm glad you mentioned that. And what's fascinating in your telling of that story is the reaction of Morrison's lawyer who saw a person that just doesn't fit with the cartoon. Yeah, yeah. And I say it quite, uh, what chapter is this? And it's and it's, and so... You know, chapter 13 is called Another Lost Angel. It starts with a picture of Morrison in a church. And then the first line is, the state of Florida killed Jim Morrison. The federal government was an accomplice. Mm. And if you look at the, at the paper trail, and, I, and as you mentioned, I talked to Bob Josephsberg, who was the co-counsel. Um, he, and I shared it with him. So what I learned from you, Carl, is that some, sometimes you share information to make sure that what you're, what you're saying is your analysis is actually backed by people who are on the ground. Yeah. And so I asked Bob, I said, I'm going to say this. It's going to be controversial, possibly. And it, Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday somebody's going to read this book and go, holy, holy mackerel, what, wow. And does this jibe with you on the ground helping Morrison during the Miami trial? And he said, it is perfect. You can use my quotes. I, 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 I mean, I didn't ask for permission, but I mean, he, you know, he, he said, definitely use this. This is true. If you look at the mountain of evidence, if you look at the sham trial, the sham evidence, Jim Morrison was perceived as like a dark prince who could actually lead American youth into revolution. The and, judge's behavior is just outrageous. Yeah. Showboating for uh, re-election. Yeah. And, and lying and during, <laughs> duplicitous all around. And so... One of the things I'm trying to get people to realize is that in the 60s, in this tinderbox era, a, a rock band could be seen as an enemy of the state. And the state set out to destroy Jim Morrison. And so if you take an alcoholic and apply pressure today, tomorrow, for 100 years ago, 500 years ago, if you apply pressure to an alcoholic a person who's struggling with addiction, there's going to be some break. Yeah. And they broke Morrison. They could not break Mick Jagger because luckily the British system had enough fail safes in it that Mick Jagger did not, was not destroyed. But I listened to an uh, uh, interview with, with uh, Mick Jagger the other day and he blamed um, at least in part Keith Richards, heroin addiction 
to the fact that the the police the, the the police state of Britain trying to arrest them pushed him over the edge, and his response was to deepen his heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what happens when a band becomes this big, this fast? How does somebody deal with this kind of fame? You have a, an addiction struggle. And then everywhere you look, there are spies and, and police and security, and they're all against you. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I, it's happening all again for me because I'm right now, I'm reading a biography of Chuck Berry. Yeah. And a lot of the same things happened to him. Yep. Boy, yeah, was that so a strong a, man. He was able to survive it, but uh, it was rough. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, those are probably the biggest keys to the book that that we didn't that we didn't discuss um you know i don't i don't often reread what i've written once i've written it it's it's out there but i've been going through roadhouse blues and and taking a look at some of the things and i'm I'm actually i'm you know i'm very proud of this book i i told somebody the other day like this is the first book and i think this is my 15th book that i've written myself um it's the first book where it's actually my voice and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and mm-hmm. I have Hamilcar and, and Kyle to th- and Jerome Charon to thank for that because it, Jerome and I are not best friends or anything, but I admire him. I, 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 he is a role model for me and I've spent the last three years reading almost nothing but Jerome Charon work and then talking with him. It's had such a profound impact on my own voice. And I feel very lucky to, to live in an age in which I can learn from people like you, learn from people like Jerome Charon, my mentor, Philip Sipiora at, at the University of South Florida. So, so I, I feel very lucky to be able to take the lessons that I've learned from people who are wiser and doing this better than me and try to roll it into my own work. Well, after after you're saying that, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> okay, I'm, Carl. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about Roadhouse Blues and and, and touch on some of the other the other points. Um, the the for for people who are interested, for listeners who are who are interested in anything from just talking about the publishing scene, if you're looking for a coach to help you along, I haven't even decided I'm going to do it, but maybe I'll do it for the right person. Um, you know, I'm easy to find. It's just bobbachelor.com. I'm on all the major social, including LinkedIn, because I have a day job working in um, executive communications. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, my books are pretty easily available right now for the holiday season. If you, if you go through indie pubs, you can get roadhouse blues for $15, which is going to be the best price available for the, whoever you buy this book for is going to love you for it for forever. And the Stan Lee books are on sale through Roman and Littlefield's site for, I think a 35% discount. So for people looking for gift ideas, um, there's the complete Bob Bachelor package. Yeah, yeah, and then, yep, and and I will just keep 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 on doing what I'm doing, Carl, and keep on researching and writing, and and hopefully, 
I think Roadhouse Blues has almost served as a kind of springboard for there's a new me emerging. There's a new me as a writer emerging and a biographer. And, you know, I'm interested to see what happens next, you know, as the as my career continues to unfold. Me too. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Carl. We'll we'll go out with a flourish. Great. Thank you. Yep. Netflix here. Dogs like oh. <laughs>